This episode of the Trek Geeks podcast is brought to you by the Trek Geek Shop. Now you can help support our show and get yourself some cool Star Trek gear at the same time. Check out our line of t-shirts, mugs, hats, and other items for your inner Trek geek at shop.trekgeeks.com. Hi, this is Nana Visitor, Major Kira Norris from Deep Space Nine, and you are listening to the biggest little show this side of the Gamma Quadrant, the Trek Geeks Podcast with Bill Smith and Dan Davidson. little show this side of the Gamma Quadrant. This is Trek Geeks, a Star Trek podcast. Yep, that's right, folks. I'm Dan Davidson. I said Gamma Quadrant because we have an interesting topic today. But before we get into all that, I would like to take this time to introduce my co-host. He honors us with his presence. His psychographic profile is required reading for Vorta Field Supervisors. (laughs) I probably know things about him that he doesn't know himself. He is the man who is responsible for the creation of all things Trek Geeks. So I guess you could say he is a founder. He is Bill Smith, and he is wise. Wow, thank you, buddy. (laughs) How you doing, man? Good, I'm a little concerned that I'm going to now have to, you know, immerse myself in a lake of gelatinous substance. (laughs) Uh, And I'm not a good swimmer, so. Well, it's... uh... It was fit for this episode, I think. So, I think. does this mean my face has no definition? Is this what you're trying to say? Um, you said it, not me, man. Wow. Sorry. Okay. You know, you know, step right into it yourself. I don't have to do that for you. Well, Dan, I'm just, I'm excited to be here. It's not often I sit on this side of the table, as it were. So, um, thank you for such a great introduction. Well done, sir. Well, thank you. Yeah, we're going to talk some fun stuff tonight. Uh, uh, we're going to our meat of the topic. We're going to be tackling what I think is the greatest adversary the Federation's ever faced, uh, worse than the Borg, more dangerous than the Klingon or Romulan empires, uh, and even more dreadful than the aquatic or arboreal Zindi, in so, my mind. So it's the Ferengi. Yes. <laughs> and their energy whips. <laughs> Yes, and there's teeth <laughs> sharpeners and all that stuff. Commander Riker. <laughs> yeah, we're talking Dominion tonight. It's going to be fun. Uh, I'm really looking forward to it. It's uh, uh, one of the best uh, story arcs of all Star Trek, in my opinion. So that'll be cool. But first, before we do that, Bill, why don't you tell uh, our listeners uh, how they can get in touch with us? Absolutely. Well, you know, on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter, our handle is Trek Geeks. You can also send us an email at trekgeeks at starfleet.com. Or you can give us a little ringy-dingy on the Telio phone at 508-784-1701. And if you're feeling so inclined, you can go to speakpipe.com slash trekgeeks and leave us a message that way. Plus, now don't forget, you can go to our official Facebook group, Camp Kittimer. 
We have a lot of great folks and discussion out there. So, oh, and hey, by the way, you'll get early access to all episodes of the Trek Geeks podcast before they're released. To join the group, go to facebook.com slash groups slash Camp Kittimer. And as always, please remember that any comments or messages you leave us in any of those places could be used in a future episode. Isn't that right, Dan? That is absolutely right. You do that so much better than I do. That's true. I do. You do. And so from now on, I think we're going to give you that that chore. Wait. Wait. Is this you being an executive producer? (laughs) Hey, yes. Wow. (laughs) No, No, thanks, Bill. That was great. I appreciate it. Um, so before we get started with the uh, news, we wanted to have a brief discussion on the events of last week. Yes. I think that's probably very good. Right. Uh, for those of you that, uh, may not be aware last week, we decided to release an interview we had with Tommy Kraft a little early. Um, we released it on Saturday instead of our regular Tuesday drop, uh, due to the, um, information that was in this interview, uh, and a couple of uh, interesting things happened uh, on Saturday after we dropped that episode, right, Bill? Yeah, we we made the decision to pull it probably a couple of hours after we had put it out there for a few reasons. Um, for those of you that have heard the episode, you remember that Tommy had talked about his conversation with CBS. Within a couple of hours of the release of that episode, it became apparent to us that it, it was entirely possible that either those calls hadn't happened or they weren't going to happen. And so we decided to pull it back until we could assess what was going on. And at that time, we decided to add a clarification to the front of the episode and also into the the, the wrap-up of the conversation. Um, clearly, what is not in dispute is what was said as to the reasoning why this was happening um, that CBS cited to Tommy, and it was because of the Axonar lawsuit. Mm-hmm. Tommy has not accused Axonar of anything. He's not suggested that they have done anything a- at all. He's not made any accusations. He's not made any claims. Everything he said was a repeat of his conversation with the executive at CBS. So as a result, we made the decision to put the episode back out 24 hours later and we offered an apology to all of the other productions because certainly we didn't want to impact them. And we offer that same apology now, you know, whether it's uh, I know captain Pike is still working on their production or continues as wrapping up fundraising and new voyages still has an episode that is yet to come out at some point uh, within the next few months. You know, we didn't want any of them to be negatively impacted. And so we apologize to all of them for potentially, you know, saying some things that that could have caused concern. Right. Right. Yeah. We want to make sure that all of those productions, all those other productions know that uh, um, we wanted to act as quickly as possible to uh, correct what we felt uh, could be something that was damaging, like Bill said. So we pulled it, we put it back out there. We've gotten some great feedback on it. We certainly wish Tommy all the best in his new project. Um, And uh, we'll see what happens. It's going to be an interesting summer. Well, Bill, time to break down the news from our good friends over at treknews.net. What do we have on tap today? Dan, we've got a few stories this week. Probably leading the top of the pile is the fact that the new Star Trek series is confirmed to be shooting in Toronto, Ontario, Canada later this year. Instead of 
Los Angeles. So that's the first time a Trek series will go to production outside of the United States. Granted, Beyond was filmed in part in the Vancouver area this summer, but um, it looks like uh, that's not going to be the case for Star Trek All Access. Looks yeah, it's, it, uh, it seems that a lot of these productions, a lot, not just Star Trek, but a lot of play, a lot of movies and TV shows are now going up to Canada. Tax, tax breaks, this, that, and the other thing. Uh, they're getting some good business up there, and and it's beautiful up there. So I'm I'm looking forward to see what it's going to be like in Beyond with the outside. Uh, sets as well as what they're going to be doing uh, with this new uh, Star Trek in January. Yeah, I think it'll be really interesting. You know, a lot of other sci-fi shows film up in Canada these days, not just for the tax breaks, but for overall, you know, cost. They can probably produce more up there with cheaper rates than they can down here in the States. That's my guess, though. I'm, you know, I'm just a, I'm just a podcaster. <laughs> and you're a darn good one. Uh, well, thank you. <laughs> but, you know, so the, uh, it's anticipated they'll start shooting this fall in theory, which means they've got to be heavy into production design and all of that stuff now. You figure they've got to start getting a cast together really soon. I'm still willing to bet that we see some kind of announcement in Vegas in August. That's what I'm hoping. I mean, it, if they're going to start filming in the fall and they've got ideas for stories, they're going to have ideas for casts and whatnot, a better place than to announce it on stage in Vegas. I think that would be pretty awesome. Yeah little teaser trailer or something like that. Yeah. We'll go good. We'll see. Uh, we just talked about Beyond a few minutes ago. A couple movies prior to Beyond coming out. We have some JJ news this week, too, a little bit. Yeah, and this one keeps coming up every, I don't know, six months to a year or so, where JJ says, yeah, there was too much lens flare. And I'm like, no kidding. Really? <laughs> because that's something fans of it. You love the lens flare. I know that. But do. apparently, JJ... <laughs> has had to cop to it again. <laughs> you know, he was uh, in an interview with Chris Rock at the Tribeca Film Festival. He admitted he went overboard and discussed how flashlights were actually shown directly into the camera lens. It wasn't added in post. It was a practical effect. And, of course, if you've watched any of the special features on either Star Trek 2009 or Star Trek Into Darkness, you've seen him do it physically. Right. Um, but this one pops up every now and then, and... I could uh, I could die from a lack of not surprise to make a Disney quote. <laughs> I uh, I I do recall seeing uh, lens flare in Star Wars, but not as much. So no. he has toned it down a little bit. Nowhere near as oh. much. That's yeah. very true. Oh well, we can hope. <laughs> and uh, finally, um, we have some interesting uh, interview uh, stuff to talk about with Simon Pegg, which I thought was very interesting. We really do, and I think this is probably the most interesting of the uh, of the stories this week. Obviously, Simon Pegg, who co-wrote Star Trek Beyond, he was discussing the uh, the filmmaking process and what it was like working with Justin Lin to uh, Collider at uh, CinemaCon, I guess it was. And I think, uh, well, the article is out on TrekNews.net, but the most interesting quote is almost a direct response to the criticism of some anti-JJ movie fans. And it is this, quote, I hate people saying that it's because, let me take that again. Quote, I hate people saying that because it's Justin Lin, it's just going to be the Fast and Furious in space. It's kind of a reductive, asinine criticism. Justin's history as a filmmaker started off with a Sundance movie called Better Luck Tomorrow. He's a smart, sensitive guy. The fact that he was able to energize the Fast and the Furious series is a testament to his smarts as a filmmaker. He's not just the car chase guy, end quote. And I think that that's really 
really interesting because it tells me that they're hearing the criticism of some of the vocal minority. I have to agree. And I think that part of that stems from the decision for the first trailer and what that was like. As soon as that first trailer came out, everybody said, oh, motorcycle chase, this, that, and the other thing. So it might be criticism that was brought on themselves with the the trailer, and we'll find out what the next trailer looks like in just a couple of weeks. But uh, very interesting from Simon Pegg. I'm really looking forward to what the story is going to be like because people have said that are involved in the movie. I believe Simon was one of them that this is a very Star Trek movie or will have very Star Trek elements to it. Well, and you know, the headline of the article on treknews.net says it all. Simon Pegg, the foundation of Star Trek is, quote, something we have to hang on to, end quote. So I have to believe that people who have been more strident critics of the last two movies will find something, or theoretically should find something to like in this movie, even though I don't know that you know a smaller minority of, of those folks will admit to it. Agreed. Yep, I, I, I agree with that. And uh, it'll be interesting to see. We're getting closer and closer. It's what, only, what, eight weeks out right now, somewhere around there? Something like that. I don't have my calculator up, so. Well, it comes out in July, right? Right. Yeah, July 22th. Tooth? Wow. Okay. You're welcome. Okay. Well, hey, Bill, uh, we're we're pretty excited about one other thing that's going on uh, that we wanted to talk about, and that would be uh, some podcast awards that are coming up. Yeah, we were very excited to receive the news that this podcast, Trek Geeks, was nominated for one of the Parsec Awards, which we're really excited about. Um, those are awards given to, you know, best... Uh, either short fiction or, you know, fiction discussion podcasts of which we qualify as one. I know there are several other Star Trek podcasts in the running there, but uh, it still is a tremendous honor to have been nominated. But then also later on that same week, we were also nominated for the podcast awards, which are given out at the largest podcast convention in the country, podcast movement, which is happening in Chicago this summer. So we've been nominated for both of those awards shows, and I, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm beside myself. I'm, I'm thankful. I'm grateful. You know, the, the, the cliche is it's an honor just to be nominated. Well, I'm here to tell you it is an honor just to be nominated. Right. Yeah. It's. Uh, I don't really have words for it. We've talked about it before. We're just two guys that like to sit and talk and and share our friendship with people, and we happen to bring Star Trek into the discussion. But for people to nominate us for awards is very, very humbling and uh, can't thank the listeners enough for it. And we'll keep doing what we're doing because we're having a great time. So thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you to everybody that submitted us for nomination. We, we are, we are humbled. That's all we can say. Thank you truly from the bottom of our hearts. Absolutely. And uh, finally, Bill, something I'm going to let you uh, take and run with because I'm an iPhone user and you're not, Uh, you've got some great Android uh, news for for the folks today. I do rejoice Android users. The day is here where Google finally supports podcasts and now you can actually subscribe to the Trek Geeks podcast on Google Play, which is really cool. It's been in the works for quite some time. They started telling podcasters they could add their show about 6 months ago and finally this past week it went live. Uh so for more information, you can go to trekgeeks.com/google. And you can find out how to subscribe to the Trek Geeks podcast on Google Play for your 
Android device, and you can even listen straight through the Google Play website. It's really cool. I tried it out just the other day. Make it so. So, Bill, just a a few seconds ago, you were talking about Android, and now the uh, podcast is available on Google Play. Uh, Folks who have uh, an iPhone or an iPad uh, or a Mac or whatever uh, can certainly still uh, subscribe and send reviews uh, to iTunes for the podcast. And we just wanted to remind everybody that uh, those reviews, you're going to be entered in for a $25 Amazon gift card uh, if you send a review to iTunes. Is that right? That's 100% correct, Dad. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. So we're asking folks to submit a review in iTunes for the podcast. Anyone so far who is submitted in 2016 will qualify for this very first giveaway that we're doing, the $25 gift card. Uh, That period ends June 30th. And then we'll start quarterly doing a $25 gift card for reviews. Um, but it's it's super easy to do. If you haven't subscribed to the Trek Geeks podcast on iTunes for your iOS device yet, all you have to do is find us and click the subscribe button. It's really that easy. And then it's all, just as simple to write a review. So there are full instructions at trekgeeks.com slash iTunes along with rules. And um, we're looking forward to giving away 25 bucks. I think that's going to be pretty awesome. That is pretty awesome. Um, is there anything in the bylaws of the rules that we did that um, family members or listener or podcast hosts can do that? You may not win the prize. <laughs> All right. Well, okay. Take that one-star review right off the list. <laughs> <laughs> and truly, we want your honest and sincere reviews. Yes. Dan jokes about his one-star review, but you know we want you to – to tell us how you really feel because that's how we build a better podcast. You know, whether it's one star or five stars, please um, tell us how you feel because we truly are interested in knowing. Absolutely. And if you want more details on this whole process, go ahead and check us out at trekgeeks.com slash iTunes for all the fun details. So Bill, um, we talked about it at the beginning of the show. We're going to talk dominion today. Uh, As I said, one of my favorite, uh, arcs in all Star Trek history was the Dominion War arc. Uh, I thought that the writing for those few seasons was some of the best in Star Trek history. So we're going to tackle the Dominion tonight. What do you think? I think that's, uh, it's massive as far as an undertaking. We could spend two hours on the Dominion, honestly, because of how much they impact Deep Space Nine. You figure from the end of season two all the way through to the end. But uh, I'm I'm looking forward to this. I think it's going to be great. If I remember correctly, wasn't this one of the first times in television history that there was a multi-episode or multi-season arc in a television series? I don't know. I'm willing to bet that's possibly the case. I know some of the Babylon 5 fans will say that B5 did it first, Mm -hmm. even though B5 premiered after DS9. Uh, So it's hard to say. All right. Well, we'll go with that. I'm sure there's someone out there who knows and, and yes. can can inform us. Yeah, absolutely. It it was one of the best arcs. Uh, it's one of those, it's one of those things that I tell people that one of the things I love about Deep Space Nine is you can be watching something in season six and they will reference something that happened in season two, which has a huge impact on what's going on. And I love the way that they were able to do that. And the Dominion was certainly one of the things um, that had a lot of that happening during the, uh, during the, what was it? Five year run of the dominion, uh, being on DS nine. Um, 
wanted to talk about a couple of things before we get into the meat of what we loved, what episodes we liked. And that's a couple thoughts and that according to uh, Wayun, the ruling of the Dominion and the Gamma Quadrant uh, was over 2,000 years, which is uh, that's kind of a long time. It's, having to listen to you for five minutes is kind of like 2,000 years. Wow. Yeah. So <clears throat> anyway, but uh, one of the things that I love about the, the Dominion is the hierarchical structure. It's always fascinated me. You have the founders um, who are the absolute rulers. And then you have the Vorta, which are the quintessential puppets of the, of the founders. And, you know, they're the slimy politicians. You know, we're going to do these behind closed doors negotiations, um, always twisting things around to be able to rule, uh, to, to be able to get what they want. And they're also very important in controlling the Jem'Hadar, the military aspect of the, of the Dominion. Um, I thought that all three species were remarkably well written. And I think that of those three, the Jem'Hadar would be my favorite. Uh, I thought that they were just awesome. I love the way they looked. Uh, I liked the way they fought. Uh, the idea of being genetically engineered in two areas. One, uh, genetically engineered to obey the founders and whatever they say. And two, genetically engineered to be addicted to Ketracel White as soon as they are um, come out of their birthing husk or whatever it is that they call. I just think that's ingenious. I think it's really cool. It, it is, but it makes me wonder where the heck the Dominion, I'm sorry, the founders raised these super soldiers and cloned the Vorta. Cause it's not like the, the homeworld of the changelings has a whole lot of infrastructure. It's a big puddle. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get into the inconsistencies, but yeah, you're absolutely right. I, they did have the cloning facilities in the alpha quadrant. Once they came over to our side of the anomaly, which I also liked how they called it. Well, but it makes me wonder who did this work for the founders. So is there some other member world of the Dominion that they subjugated to create this race of super soldiers? Yeah. So as we consider, you know, the, the hierarchical structure of the Dominion, starting with the founders, how, well, for first, how did they conquer that first world? So I don't know. Things that, well, <laughs> hey, come on, Superfan1701. <laughs> Mr. I love the Dominion. They're my favorite adversary ever. You can't give away all their secrets. <laughs> or you can't. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> um, that brings up a good point, and that is um, right out of my head. So we're going to come back to it once I think of it. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. As you, were, as you were talking, I'm like, oh, yeah. Um, I think that the Jem'Hadar were a more menacing soldier than Borg drones, in my opinion. I just th I thought it was great. I thought they looked great. I love the scales. I love the horns. Uh, I love that you could see the feeding tube of the catcher cell white always, you know, going in. You could see a little liquid going through it. I don't know if you've ever caught that. Of, of course cool. I did. Okay. Um, I just like I like the names. They're always something clan or some Tim Radagon or something like that. I was just, <laughs> just cool names. I like it. Well, the, the <laughs> I'm laughing because I was just watching some some Jemadar episodes over the weekend. Uh, to, to brush up and the Ometaclon is the first hit of, of any, you know, gem Hadar unit. Yep. Um, I don't know that they actually have a name other than first. <laughs> he was my second. I am third. <laughs> <laughs> we make things go. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're Pakladar. Pakled super soldiers. That's what they are. <laughs> I think that the thing that for me makes them, more threatening than the Borg is the fact that uh, 
Well, the, the Borg are just seeking to to perfect. You know, they they assimilate technologies theoretically in their own vision of perfection, and the Jemadar kill, they yeah. conquer, and they do so because it's the will of the founders, and they do so because that's what they're bred to do, and they do so because if they don't, they don't get this enzyme they need to survive, right. and I think that there, there's a there's a fierceness that's bred into them and a desperation that happens as a result, because if they don't get the white, they're going to die. We figured what an, in the, uh, there was one episode, um, I watched over the weekend and Jadzi is talking to one of the gem Hadar. I think it's, um, uh, is it the ship? No, it's probably later than that, but he says, you know, he's eight years old to the death. Uh, to the death. Thank you. Yep. He's eight years old. And, you know, Jadzi's like, well, I'm 300. <laughs> and he does a double take. But, you know, if they get the Chemhardar get to 20, they're considered elder statesmen of sorts. Yeah. It's like, yeah. really? Yeah, it's great. And I also like that later on, I believe it was in season seven, you actually get to see an honored elder. He was like 22 or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, they are an alpha. I'm a gamma. So I just like the, the whole. And that's another thing that was great about the Chemhardar is that they had a divide between them when some were created in the alpha quadrant and some were in the gamma quadrant, they were like head to head with each other. They yeah. didn't like each other. I thought that was kind of cool too. Well, you figure into the death, they go after a rogue squad of mm-hmm. Jem'Hadar. That's like 150 some odd, 160 right. Jem'Hadar soldiers. And I'm like, well, so what causes these people with a sole purpose, these genetically engineered soldiers to go rogue? Right. You know, at what point do they decide, well, we're not doing this? Mm-hmm. It's a very good question, and it's one that we just actually watched to the death recently again, uh, my wife and I, and, and it's a question that popped in my head. How can they do this if they are genetically bred to obey the founders? Because the founders would certainly never say, go ahead and do this. And how could they do it knowing that once they run out of the supply of white that they have, that they're going to die? Right. But then again, they do mention in the episode that if they were able to successfully capture this Iconian gateway, that a lot more Jem'Hadar would follow suit and that they would have their own army and be able to take over the Vorta, get all the white they need, and then have their own rebellion. I like To the Death for a variety of reasons. I mean, you figure first off, it's the, the very first appearance of Wayun. Mm. Oh, yeah. Well, one of the Wayuns. So let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Um but I think it's it's a story that holds a lot of Jem'Hadar lore for going forward. Mm-hmm. If you're at the end of that episode, the Jem'Hadar soldiers stay. I mean, this you know the the first of that unit had intended to kill Cisco mm-hmm. at one point, and then says, "Well, no, you fought well, you know, but we're we're going to stay here because there's about a hundred other guys that we need to kill." I'm like, yeah. oh, "Okay, <laughs> well, you killed your Vorda, so you're not getting any white." Well, they did have the white. They had the box. It wasn't unlocked. Ah, they'll get it open. They have a, they have like a Vorta key or something like that. Vorta key. He uses a handprint and voice analysis to open the thing. <laughs> yep. Anybody can sound like Wayun. Wow, he is wise. <laughs> yeah, that is one of the that is one of the great uh, episodes. Uh, I like how you see that they're so focused on the mission and they are so focused on not breaching. Uh, protocol that if you do you're going to get your neck snapped that was one of the best scenes of the whole episode well i thought the tension between Worf 
and the second and that uh, throughout that whole episode was just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. You know, you know that it's going to come to a head at some point. And you have no idea when, but you never anticipate that the second is going to be just killed on the spot by the first. Right. And then he becomes he, he gets upset at Cisco for not killing Worf. <laughs> It's yeah. like, okay, okay now, well, I guess it's your turn now. And it's just like, huh? Uh, no, please. Yeah, it's a, that's, a, that's a good episode. Speaking of the Jem'Hadar, though, that's not the first time we've seen them. The actual first time right. we saw them was in season uh, season two's finale, which the episode was called, Hey! The Jem'Hadar! Yep. Um that was a good one. That was a very good episode. It wasn't the first mention of the Dominion. The Dominion was actually mentioned in season two's Rules of Acquisition. Right. But the first time you saw Vorta, uh, a female Vorta at that, um, and the Gemadar was in that season two finale, which was a that was a good episode too. It was a, it was a good uh, Jake Nog Quark episode, but having the the this Vorta and the Gemadar, uh, it was a good um, glimpse of what was coming. So I remember watching that episode first run. So at the time, I th- I'm pretty sure I was living in Denver. And it was a Saturday night. It was one of the few Saturday nights that I wasn't working at the you know the pizza delivery place I was working at in my 20s. And they get to the end of that episode where the Jem Hadar, you know, essentially kamikazes the Odyssey. Yeah. You know, galaxy class starship, which you haven't really seen too much of since next gen. Mm-hmm. And it just blows up. And I'm like, yeah. I'm staring at the screen with my mouth agape, just total disbelief at, oh my God, mm-hmm. no way. It just, it showed me how ruthless, it showed me how calculating and just how bad the Gemhadar were. Yeah. And this is something that Starfleet hasn't seen, not even with the Klingons, because Klingons have honor. Right. Jem'Hadar have no honor. No. They just, they, they have objectives. The other thing I liked about that scene, I mean, it was, I remember as well, it was just shock, but that showed you what was to come in terms of the special effects with the space battle scenes on Deep Space Nine. Yeah. That was one of the first, and it was magnificent. It really was. Uh, You know, when the, the Galaxy class ship exploded, it, it looked really good. It looked better than it did in cause and effect because, you know, you saw it like four times in that episode. But, you know, it it really left me with that sense of I've got to wait three and a half months to find out what happens next. It wasn't a cliffhanger, but it, it made me anticipate that season premiere even more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was great. Good writing. One question, though, about the Jem'Hadar. Yeah. No chicks. <laughs> 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 so you're saying just, the Gemadar are inherently sexist? Is that it? <laughs> yes, I wanted to throw that out there just to see where your reaction would be. But well, that's another brilliant piece of writing. Well, but that's the founders being sexist because the Gemadar didn't create themselves. That's true. But no female Gemadar. And the, the the reaction from Jadzia in that episode to the death when she found out that there were no Gemadar women was yeah. priceless. <laughs> yeah. No awesome. food, no women. <laughs> Ah. No wonder you're uptight. Yeah, no wonder you guys kill everything. It's... <laughs> yeah. So um, a couple of other things that I wanted to point out about what I really liked about the Dominion um, and the people that played. Of course, nothing nothing else can be said about Jeffrey Combs. He is so good as Wayun. As a matter of fact, he was responsible for a lot of the development of the Vorta himself. Um, he said that in interviews that he was able to 
kind of developed the the species on his own. And I believe it was his idea that the founders actually um, took that species and they were nothing more than berry eating apes in the jungle uh, and turned them into what they become when we see it in Deep Space Nine. That's really interesting. You know, after I watched the uh, the season two finale, the Gem Hadar, I found myself wondering because it's it's been so long since I've rewatched DS Nine. Do we ever see the psionic powers of the Vorta again? No, that's one of the things that I wanted to bring up with the inconsistencies that we're going to get into is that was something that was really cool and we never saw it again. And it could have helped Wayun five, six, or seven probably <laughs> quite a few times. Maybe even eight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that was that was very cool that they had that. I also like the little prison ring that they were stuck in in that episode. Yeah. Uh, that was pretty cool. Uh, but yeah, it would have been neat to see or have an explanation of that whole uh, – power that they had and she kind of like shot it out of her neck or whatever it was <laughs> yeah i thought that that would have been a, a great thing to carry forward in the character but i i part of me balances that against the fact that way Yoon was just such a great lap dog oh yeah for the founders that mm. i i think that if you gave him any kind of actual power i don't think that the character would have come across the same that's true Maybe it was – I mean, it, it's quite possible and we don't know. We only saw, I believe, two other female Vortas in the in the run of of the Dominion War arc. This one, Eris, had that. Maybe it was a female trait. Who knows? I mean, that would be something that maybe we could uh, see if there's mm. anything in any books or something like that that explain that. That would be kind of neat if that would be the case. Speaking of female Vortas, one of – I know we're not necessarily – talking about you know episodes right now but it, it just came to mind so i'm going to bring it up because we're kind of skipping mm -hmm. around on topics sure um i think that one of my all-time favorite gem hadar slash dominion episodes is the ship oh yeah that female board is great and it's because of what happens with the starfleet crew oh yeah you know it's an episode that I'm sure Gene would have had huge problems with because there's nothing but conflict between the Starfleet personnel in this episode. And when you look at what it means for Worf and O'Brien, you know, Worf, who's a Lieutenant commander and O'Brien, who's a, an enlisted guy, yeah. he just, he's ready to get in Worf's face and smack him around over Munoz. Right. And it's, it it's, is it is a weighty episode. It's a gut wrenching episode. It's it is a gut rate. It's very gut wrenching, and especially the scene where Cisco has enough and he starts screaming at everybody. That's a that's a great scene. Says so, you know we're filthy. Start acting like Starfleet officers, but at the same time, Worf because he's Klingon is telling O'Brien go ahead and kill the guy. What put him out of his misery? Yeah, I mean I I could totally see what you're saying about Gene just having fits about this this episode. Yeah, because it seems a little out of character for Worf. It seems like they're trying to give him a little too much Klingon lore in this episode. Mm -hmm. You know, he, they're, they're like overcompensating for the Klingon side because he looks like a Klingon. Yep. And because they have him there to justify the Klingons being part of the war. Mm -hmm. But they forget Worf's humanity at times. Right. I, I Don't get me wrong. I think it was a great development for Worf over the time he was on DS9. But I think there are those moments where they kind of, kind of like they did with McCoy in the original series, they gumbified him into whatever they needed him to serve at that moment. Yeah. One of, uh, since we're bouncing around, one of the inconsistencies that I wish had gotten 
more information on is from this episode. Uh, Munez, first of all, is his name Kincaid or Kincaid? I could never understand what O'Brien was saying versus anybody else. No, O'Brien was calling him by some some kind of, of diminutive nickname. Oh, okay. I never got that. Okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. So Munez, okay. He gets shot by the Jemadar weapon. Yeah. And they talk about how they've got some kind of anticoagulant in it. We never hear about that again. Well, it, it never gets confirmed either. True. Uh, but the, what I was going to say in regards to the weapons is after this episode, when somebody gets shot by a Jemadar weapon, they're dead. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a one-shot dead. It's like, it's, like a, it's like the bird of prey taking out the Enterprise with one torpedo. I mean, that's it. <laughs> Uh, I thought that was interesting that that kind of never got talked about him because that was a that's a that's ingenious a weapon with an anticoagulant in it. Maybe they just thought the show would take fourteen seasons and people are just going to bleed to death all show long. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. Oh man, that um, that whole scene after Munoz gets shot with that weapon until he dies after they try to make their first attempt to get the the Jem'Hadar ship going. It is. It is an incredibly written script from start to finish. Right. And there's so many facets of, of every character in that show that, that you either haven't seen before or you haven't seen in a while. Yeah. And it was, it, it is one of my favorite dominion arc episodes. And it's probably one of my favorite DS nine episodes. Yes. It's very good. The, the, I like how they showed each crew members reaction to as he was hallucinating fireworks as the explosions were yeah. going on around the ship. Just, yeah. That was brilliant. Um, good score with that one too. It was very, it was very uh, moody score when they were in the ship and it was dark and everything, but, but the action was good too. And we talked about it for a quick second. I thought that Vorta should have been seen again. She did a great job uh, in that episode. I was actually surprised she wasn't. Yeah. Um, and I was surprised we didn't see the, the first female Vorta ever again. Eris. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Eris. You know, instead they, I mean, well, when you have someone like Jeffrey Combs and you have such a great character that he's painting and you, you kill him at the end of his first episode, then you keep finding ways to bring Wayun back. I, I get why. <laughs> uh, speaking of that, for on a quick tangent, the episode where DeMar kills one of the Wayun clones <laughs> and then is just sitting in his office with his feet up on his desk. Uh, no, I'm sorry. It was Worf who killed him. Um, and Demar is just sitting in his desk, and the new clone walks in, and Demar just like, "Hello!" <laughs> For the best Demar moments, that was good. Um, something else that I thought was really great was Salome Yens. I think that's how you pronounce her last name. I'm not positive. As the female shapeshifter, she was ruthless, and her ruthlessness grew. As the war got longer and longer, uh, of course, you had the the founder disease from Section 31. I'm sure that didn't help with the stress levels. But the, the the one thing, there are two things that I remember with her, one serious and one not. One was her order to destroy, to wipe out Cardassia, 800 million Cardassians dead. That's, talk about genocide. I mean, that was that was something that I did not expect to ever see in a Star Trek episode. I thought that was very interesting. I agree. I, I I have to agree with you on her ruthlessness. I'm going to tie this into our favorite inconsistency because I think it lent to the the very tone of her character. Mm-hmm. And because her facial makeup was 
essentially patterned after Odo's. Right. For no real reason <laughs> in canon. Yes. Is, um, I think that you had to rely more on her words and her tone. Yes. Because you couldn't see the the facial changes or the various articulation, you know, looking the way she did. And she, the actress played that amazingly, especially when she was, you know, furious. Yes. I was going to say, there's one scene where some new hack Cardassian guy takes over for Damar when Damar's uh, rebels. And he says something and that just pisses her off. And she grabs him by the throat and lifts him up and is kind of yelling at him. There's no emotion in her face at all during yeah. that because of the makeup. Um, so, you know, kudos to her for, for being able to portray that in a way that, that really uh, brought out that evil of, of the founders uh, when they knew that they were about to lose the war. So let's dig into my favorite inconsistency, and that's the look of the founders. Before we do that, I got one other thing I want to say about the female shapeshifter. Yeah. And the funny thing that I've always remembered about her, at the end of the war – they're on the space station and they're signing the treaty. The treaty of Bajor is what the, uh, the, the truce documentation was called. I just always laugh out loud when she signs the document with a pen and then just kind of throws the pen down and stands up and walks away, goes to talk to Odo. I've always thought that's hysterical. <laughs> well, okay. But inconsistencies. Oh, this is a big one. So Odo got his look from trying to emulate Dr. Mora. Mm-hmm. And that's why his facial features are rounded because he couldn't quite master looking like a Bajoran humanoid. And yet the first time we meet the founders, they walk out of the puddle looking like Odo. Mm-hmm. I, one, how did they know what Odo was going to look like? <laughs> it's not like he joined with the link. Right. And then you see – Whenever – if they're not in their gelatinous state, whenever you see a changeling not um, changed into something specific, hmm. they all look like Odo. The guy that was the ambassador uh, on the Defiant yep. um, who Odo threw into the engine and killed, he morphed back into an Odoisk looking person. Right. Um, there's, a, there's a bunch of them, but they always had that, that look to them, and it's something that I've always questioned. Well, you figured – you know, changelings were able to look like Martok. They were able to look like Dr. Bashir, mm-hmm. able to look like Admiral Layton at Starfleet Command mm-hmm. in uh, Homefront and Paradise Lost. And I, you think that they would just pop out of the goo looking like somebody. Pop out of the goo. Okay, that- wanna, okay, get ready. Get your insult meter on because I know you're going to love this one. <laughs> the first time that I remember watching this and they talked about the great link. I thought they called it the Great Lake because what? of <laughs> what? I'm like, what? The Great Lake? That that's so weird because it was a big lake. The, the planet was a big lake. <laughs> the Great Lake. We have five of those. Come on. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, that's you, a true story. You're putting me on. Uh, no, it's a true story, man. I'm not kidding you. I wouldn't kid you about something like that. So, so wait a second. <laughs> At what point did you dis- did you finally realize it was the Great Link? I don't even remember, but I was like, oh, that's what it is. Okay. What? <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs> oh, this makes me want to come up with a new shirt for the Trek Geek store that looks like a vacation postcard that says, visit the Great Lake. <laughs> And it's it's a photo of the you know the Planet. the ocean of changelings <laughs> with Odo and his tux waving at us. Yeah, totally. 
That's awesome. Oh. Well, I did find an interesting piece of information. It's not official and it's not canon, but back in 1997, Ronald Moore, who was one of the writers on DS9, was having an AOL chat and he was asked about the look of the founders. And I thought his answer was very interesting. And this makes as much sense as anything else, but he says, and this is a quote based on the article I was reading. Odo modeled, like you said, Odo modeled his look after Dr. Mora, and the founders then modeled their look after Odo. They did this initially as a compliment and a way of reaching out to their long lost changeling. And later they kept doing it as a dig and a reminder to him of his own limitations. I find that very interesting, but it does bring up the point that you said, how did they know what Odo looked like? I'm, I love Ron Moore. Mm-hmm. And we specifically Ronald D. Moore. He's the yes. writer. Yes. Not Ronald B. Moore, who also worked on Star Trek. Right. Um, I used to I used to participate in a lot of those AOL chats in the late '90s for when Ron Moore was on, and I I vaguely remember this answer, but I, I'm sure that was the reasoning behind it. But it it sounds more like we have to create a reason why the changelings look like Odo, rather than hey, we should make them look like Odo, and here's why. <laughs> Yes. It yep. sounds like it was it was backwards engineering. Okay. Retcon? Retcon, sure. There you go. Okay. All right, we can go with that. Um, we talked about some of our favorite episodes so far. To the Death is, I think, both of, on our list. Yes. Um, the Ship uh, is another one. I love um, The Ship. The Ship is a great episode. I um, It's definitely probably in my top five list of Deep Space Nine episodes. That's pretty cool. I didn't know that it was up that, up that high for you. I love Hippocratic Oath. Interesting. Why? I think it's another perfect, perfectly written Jem'Hadar episode. You have um, a group that have uh, crash-landed on a planet, and one of them is no longer addicted to the white. But still, the whole idea of order and the founders is still high on, on all of their minds. It's, it's, it's a lot of, it's, it's very much a Bashir O'Brien episode, of course, but I think that the Jem Hadar aspect of this episode was, was awesome. With a lot of these episodes, I find I like them for what they do to the Starfleet characters and the tension they create between them. You know, in Hippocratic Oath, Miles and Julian are sort of, still kind of trying to find their way as people who work together mm-hmm. and as friends. And then at some point, Bashir is to pull rank on him. Yeah. And that doesn't set well with him. And then Miles essentially defying his orders in the episode really puts a strain on their relationship and their, their sort of their new friendship. And I think that's what I appreciate the most about that episode is the limits it pushes it to. What I like about it is you have it on both sides. You have the, the, Jemadar who are trained to follow orders without question. But on the other side, you have Bashir who is trained to always try to help the injured because he's a doctor. Right. And it's interesting that it's the whole enemy helping the enemy because they're injured type of thing. I thought it was great. Well, and you have Miles being the realist in the middle mm-hmm. as a guy who has seen war before. Right. Do not move. You are prisoners of the Jem'Hadar. I love that. <laughs> what other ones are on your list of, uh, of favorites? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you what my I think my favorite of all of them is, and that's Rocks and Shoals. Mm. I think that is the best Jem'Hadar Vorta 
story that they did on the show because it shows the ruthlessness of the Vorta and it shows the um, loyalty of the Jem'Hadar, even knowing that they're going to be betrayed by the, by the Vorta, they're still going to do what they're told and they get massacred. Yeah. That's really great. Yeah. It's really, really great. Uh, the guy who was the main of the Jem'Hadar first in that episode was the guy who played um, Kramer's lawyer in Seinfeld. But you'd never know it looking at that makeup. No, that's true. <laughs> Phil yep. Morris, who who uh, has been in Star Trek many times. Yes. Yep. Uh, it's a great episode. They were able to do things in ways that didn't make it look, look cheesy. For instance, uh, Terry Farrell has a condition where she can't be in the sun a lot. So they had her injured so right. that she would be in the cave the whole time. I thought right. that was great. Uh, the uh, The special effect of the ship kind of sinking off in the distance and yeah. everybody was swimming to shore and, and Nog, I, I'm sorry. It's just funny watching Nog, uh, Aaron try to swim with that headgear on. <laughs> that's, always, that's always great. Um, but it's just the, the tension in that episode. And you can see the look on Cisco's face, knowing that he's trying to save these Jem'Hadar, but he has no choice and they're just going to pick them off one by one because they have the high ground. I find that a lot of my favorite Dominion episodes are early on in the arc mm-hmm. comparatively. Mm-hmm. You know, I meant I, I love the Jemadar simply before what it establishes. I love the ship. I love to the death. But I think that my 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 favorite of all of them is probably the the two parter of In Purgatory Shadow and By Inferno's Light. Because you it, so much gets revealed yes. during that time. You find out Bashir's been a changeling for a while, <laughs> and you're like, what? <laughs> What the what? <laughs> you know, they start laying mines for the wormhole. Right. They uh, there's the uh, the prison camp, and Worf has got to go through so many fights, mm-hmm. and the Gemma Hadar refuses to kill him, which what I thought was really interesting. But for me, I mean, after that, I mean, certainly there are many good episodes, but I thought that for me, the most intricate and and well-crafted stories were were probably around that era. Yeah, I have to agree. I think as the series started to get to a conclusion, the war in a very umbrella top level became the most important part of the story. So they weren't able to focus in on stuff like this. I agree with you. The prison camp, awesome. The only problem I always had with that episode is, is even though um, it took a while for him to do it, for Garrick to be able to just go behind the wall and play with some wires and to be able to get a uh, runabout still in orbit. Hello, Jem'Hadar. Hello. Shoot the thing down. That was a little far-fetched. But. Uh, slightly. <laughs> I do have to, you know, for for honorable mention, I do have to say that uh, the Siege of AR-558 oh. is probably one of my favorite late, mm-hmm. you know, uh, season shows i think it's season seven probably i think it's like episode eight or nine it uh there's so much that occurs there mm. especially with what it means for nog yes uh, that uh that that one absolutely has to be on the list for me i do love that episode too it's great and that's another one that gene would be jumping out of his skin over i'll bet oh yeah <laughs> you think yeah. yeah very very good very dark very i mean that's that's a this is what war's like that's really one of the first times you see that in track you don't you haven't seen that since or before, I don't think. Not to no, that level. But I think there's so much of Deep Space Nine that you can say that about that you haven't seen before right. or since. Right. That's Honestly. Right. Yeah. So. 
I mean, there's there's so many. We could go, like you said, we could go on for another hour about all the different episodes and all the different nuances of all the different aliens in the Dominion. I think it's I think it's uh, I think it was a a remarkable way to to get the show going. I think is another thing that's important to say. Season one very slow. Season two not so fast either. It started picking up when they introduced the Dominion for Deep Space Nine, in my opinion. Once they brought the Dominion in, things really started to to take off in my mind in terms of story, action, um, character development, so on and so forth. I think that's that was that was one of the starting points. I agree. Yeah. Well, of course you do. <laughs> so anyway, um, it's a great discussion. We could go on to the Dominion forever, but we're going to hold it up or we're going to wrap it up now. Um, there's a pretty important uh, project we're working on right now, Bill, for uh, later on in the fall. Why don't you tell us about it? There is, and it's a celebration 50 years in the making, Dan. You know, we've all been Star Trek fans for so long. It's been a part of our lives for most of our lives for many of us. And and this year we all get to celebrate something really huge. I mean, how many franchises get to hit 50 with a fan base like ours? So what we want everyone to do is to let, tell us the story of the first time you ever watched Star Trek. And it's really simple to do. You can either call us at 508-784-1701, or you can leave us a voicemail at, uh, at speakpipe.com slash trekgeeks, or even use the little blue button on our website. And you can tell us about your Trek. You know, we want to hear how it started. We want to know what how you got going. We want to know what made it special for you. Who were you with? You know, was it, was it family? Was it friends? Did you stumble across it? So please tell us those details. Uh, please remember to keep it three minutes or under. And of course, give us your name, your location, all that good stuff. And any stories you give us, uh, we're going to put into a special episode of the podcast that's dropping in September. And that way we can um, share your story with the world. So that's what we're doing. It's our Trek 50 campaign, and we really hope you'll all participate. Sounds awesome. I can't wait to hear it. All those people, it's going to be great. Uh, I'm, I, I hear the voicemails as they come in. I'm kind of shielding you from them so you can hear them for the first time in September, many of them. And a lot of the stories are great. It just awesome. They make you smile. Yes. You well, know? you make me smile. Uh, you know what else makes us smile, Dan? Those are our friends in the band Five Year Mission, your house band for Star Trek Las Vegas, the 50th anniversary convention in Las Vegas this summer. We we love these guys. So much great music. Every ounce of music you hear on our show is Five Year Mission. So please head on out to fiveyearmission.net, get some Federation credits out of that wallet, and slap them down and get yourself some, some albums. And that way you're going to have some earworms in your head. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> So we're going to be getting them some, some some Febreze. Is that the plan? Well, I think we should start a crowdfunding campaign to either buy them a new set of uni- or second set of uniforms because they're playing five days straight. That's a lot. That's, that's, that's like a lot. That's a lot of the same clothes. That's what I'm talking about. You know, I, uh, I, I know that uh, I'm, all those guys are going to be having the time of their lives and I'm sure they're going to be dead tired, but uh, we're looking forward to it anyway. I'm going to get them a case of Fark Breeze. Oh, my God. God, just shut up. <laughs> I, I, Fark, I'm sorry. I tried. I threatened him. I did a whole bunch of stuff. Said, don't you dare do it. He did it anyway. I, um, yeah. Yeah, okay. So, 
<laughs> For more great Star Trek discussion, please check out our friends at the Tricorder Transmissions online at thetricordertransmissions.com. And, of course, for all the latest Star Trek news, please visit treknews.net. It's the second time I've screwed that up. Please visit treknews.net and make them your first stop always. But for now, this has been episode 57 of Trek Geeks, a Star Trek podcast. We hope you all live long and prosper. I am a Jem Hadar. He is a coconut. It is the order of things. Okay. Bong. Get ready to match the stars. <laughs> Good evening. Good evening, Dad. How are you? I'm fine, Bill. I'm talking in the voice that my wife absolutely hates, and she's right there. You could talk in any voice, and I think she probably hates it because it's your voice. Wow. Okay. All right. Let's get started. Wow. <laughs> so I got to. I got something that you will be surprised that I'm drinking. What is it? This is called a, it's called Baxter Brewing. It's called Window Seat and is a porter, which you know that I usually don't drink, but it is brewed with natural coconut and almond. <laughs> so, so it's an almond joy. <laughs> it's an almond joy. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually quite good. We had it at uh, where'd you have it, honey? At Romeo's the other night. Yeah, yeah Romeo's. We went out to dinner at one of our our favorite sports pub that has the best nachos in the area. Best and, uh, nachos. Best nachos. They're so good. But but if they're nachos, whose are they? Wow, that's wow. What? They're they're always mine. Not if they're your wife's. They're mine. No, they're really not. I think you fail to understand how this all works. <laughs> they're hers. They're, they're everything. It's, it's, it's all hers. I love you, honey. <laughs> it's always, it's always all hers. hers. Mm-hmm. But it is actually quite good. And you know me, I'm not a beer drinker. Well, yeah. What possessed you to want to try a porter? She got it. It was on tap. She asked what they had on tap. I had a margarita like I usually do. And uh, she didn't want a, her regular Cosmo. So they. Uh, she asked what they had on tap. And they told them. And she goes, oh, what's that? And they said what it was. And she gave it a try. And then I tried it. And I was like, wow. And then we went to the store. And they had some. Yes, have some. Is Are they a, a local brewery? I actually don't know. I was trying to look at that earlier. Oh, yes. Actually, crafted in craft brewed in Lewiston, Maine. Right near the swamp. <laughs> Sorry, that was a little uh, Bob Marley humor. <laughs> you got to write that down, do you?
I assume you mean Bob Marley, the comedian who routinely yes. makes fun of New England. Yes. And not Bob Marley, the dead no. reggae musician. No. no, that that reference I just made is there's a place. What town is that? Saco, honey? What? So where's the, uh, where's the Italian restaurant near the swamp? in Saco. There's a town called Saco in Maine and there's this marsh that you there's a main road that you drive down and it's marsh and it always is the worst smelling area you could ever imagine. And smack dab in the middle of that road, there's an Italian restaurant and it's been there forever and it does really well. I could you, never eat there. Do you think they have marshmallows? <laughs> it's quite possibly. Wow. You're on fire tonight so far. Two for two. What was the first Nachos. One? Nachos. Oh, yeah, nachos. Yeah, <laughs> hey, but that joke always kills. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm going to kill you. I don't think that's necessary in any way. <laughs> I, there's all this unbridled hostility you're bringing to the table it's not, tonight. It's, it's nothing but joyous happiness. I don't think I like you when you drink beer. Actually, it's not the beer. It's another root canal I'm probably going to have to get this week. You're a nasty drunk. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, on the other hand, I am drinking Shipyard Melonhead. I do have one of those in the fridge. Good stuff. I've got about 12 of them in the fridge, so. Yep. We got the, um, you know, you have the build your own six pack now, pretty much everywhere. Have you seen that? I have, although I think it costs more than just buying a 12 pack of something you like. Yeah. Well, well, they didn't have the Baxter in, in six or 12 packs, but they had it in the singles. So we got a few of those and then a couple of other things. And Melonhead was one of the ones that I picked. That's tremendous, Dan. It's Melonhead, and it's good. It's unlike your Melonhead. This just into the <laughs> Trek Geeks newsroom. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I'm Bill Smith reporting in front of Hurricane Dan. <laughs> I wish people could see you right now. That's hysterical. That looks awesome. For those of you who don't know what's going on here, Bill has a microphone that he's holding up that actually has a Trek Geeks logo like the old newscasters used to have when they were out. Not even the old ones. Current ones still do, do they it. Still, I don't watch news very much anymore. I do yeah, it all it's, online. It's a, I've got a microphone with what's called a mic flag. That's awesome. For when we are in Vegas. And it's blue, which seems to be the color that everyone thinks I should go with because for the tire it, cover. Well, for your car, the red would clash with yeah. the, the sort of rust-colored orange. Yep, we agree. Oh, oh, we do, do we? Because it sounds like you had to ask about 45 different people first. <laughs> and all but one said blue. Who and was who the, one, the one? You. Fark. <laughs> he said, said red. Red, because yeah. he's biased towards the red. So, But that's all right. We love yeah. Fark. Anyway. I'm calling a moratorium on Fark adjectives tonight. No, you're not. I got a great one. I'll delete it. No, it's great. <laughs> I will edit it out. <laughs> it's very short. It's a good one. Yeah. D- wait, sorry. Did you th- <laughs> did you think the last one was good? Fark did. I don't know that that was <laughs> he was thinking that was good. <laughs> oh, he loves it. Anytime he gets a little, you know, radio play, he's happy. If we were on the radio, Mr. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, <laughs> that might matter. We're not. This is a newfangled <laughs> thing called a podcast. Podcast. Perhaps you've heard of it. Yes. <laughs> oh, I'm going to try and cry. 